Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In this Rajiv Vaidya Memorial Lecture, recorded on December 4th, 2016, Tom Gunning, Edward A. and Betty L. Bergman Distinguished Service Professor, Department of Art History and Department of Cinema and Media Studies, University of Chicago, presented his research and ideas about the influence of the motion picture on both the visual arts and the act of perception, particularly in the earliest decades of cinema. As Gunning states, images have moved for nearly two centuries and have introduced new visual relationships to time and representation. His discussion searches for the roots and implications of the transformation, one that continues to this day. Well, it's a great honor and privilege to be here at one of the great institutions of art in the Western world, and a place where I spent a wonderful time at, at, at Kazva uh, here in this very building uh, last year, uh, doing some of the research that I'm going to talk about here. Uh, and it is also wonderful to be here for the Vajek family, um, because as I understand, this lecture series that has been going on for several years is dedicated to someone who is deeply in love with cinema, who, who had this kind of love of the moving image, which is something that I'm going to be talking about. Okay, you may have wondered why this image is up there, and uh, it's, it's, you'll, I'll explain it. Uh, but I might also say before I get into it uh, that um, this is a talk that's coming out of a book I'm writing that is very detailed and historical, but this is what I'm going to offer here is kind of a, a bit of an overview. And it is precisely on moving images. There's something extraordinary about them, and we don't seem to keep it in mind. So I'll try to prove that thesis. So let me begin, though, with a discussion or we'll begin this discussion of um, very modern images with a literary citation, a scene from a classic American novel from about a century ago, Frank Norris's 1899 novel, McTeague, uh, which is perhaps now only read in college literary courses, although I recommend it. McTeague was a scandalous novel uh, in its time, and it's a work of still often bitter realism by the author who is often referred to as the American Zola. It tells the story of a San Francisco dentist who through heredity and circumstances beyond his control descends into a morass of greed and murder and in fact ends up dying violently in Death Valley. And indeed in 1923, McTeague, the novel, inspired what I think is the greatest cinematic treatment of naturalism Eric von Stroheim's silent film entitled Greed, which this image is from, which shocked Hollywood executives uh, and nearly uh, ended Stroheim's career. But the scene from the novel that I'm going to cite today actually doesn't appear in the film. It describes the night out at a theater that, where McTeague celebrates his engagement to Trina Sieppe. Mac takes Trina and her German immigrant mother, Mrs. Siepe, to see a vaudeville show. The bill offers musical wonders, acrobats, lightning artists, ventriloquists, and last of all, the feature of the evening, the crowning scientific achievement of the 19th century, the kinetoscope, Edison's greatest marvel. 
So, quoting this scene from the novel itself. The kinetoscope fairly took their breaths away. What will they do next? Observed Trina in amazement. Ain't that wonderful, Mac? McTeague was awestruck. Look at that horse move its head, he cried excitedly, quite carried away. Look at the cable car coming and the man going across the street. See, here comes a truck. Why, I never in all my life, what would Marcus say to this? It's all a trick, exclaimed Mrs. Siepe with sudden conviction. I ain't no fool. That's nothing but a trick. Well, of course, Mama, exclaimed Trina. It's, but Mrs. Siepe put her head in the air. I'm too old to be fooled, she persisted. It's a trick. Nothing more could be gotten out of her than this. Now, this is certainly a fictional account in a novel, but the proximity of his description, published in 1899, to the actual invention of motion pictures, which had their big city premieres in the USA in 1896, just a couple years before, and the author's devotion to journalistically accurate, detailed accounts, makes me take the scene very seriously. I think it truly captures the range of ways that audiences saw their first motion pictures at the turn of the century. Mac and Trina are amazed and admiring of this new technology. What will they think of next? And enthused over the way it captures the motions of everyday life. The old world, Mrs. Siepe, however, refuses to be impressed. The motion picture, according to her, is nothing but a trick. While some mythical accounts of the first film showings have claimed that audiences reacted to the moving image with panic, with outright fear, and that they rushed out of theaters as a train came roaring under the screen or waves threatened to engulf them. But Mrs. Siepe, who would seem to be naive, sees it as nothing more than a visual deception, a sort of magic trick. Now, having done a lot of research, I've found no evidence that early film viewers ever took the motion pictures for reality and panicked. They weren't stupid. <laughs> Mrs. Siepe's dismissal is probably more likely than such naive hysteria. But I want to keep these two somewhat antithetical responses, but I think similar in, in, uh, in their sense of what the film was, in mind. On the one hand, wonder at the new technology, and the other one, seeing the movies as a sort of magic trick. Early audiences realized the motion pictures were, in fact, pictures, not reality. But they were a new and unusual kind of picture, of image, one that seemed both to provoke wonder and some skepticism about its apparently magic trickery. By beginning with this moment of cinema's origins, I also want to make us rediscover a fundamental far-reaching revolution in the nature of the image. And this is what I want to stress. It's not just that cinema was a new invention. It was a revolution in how we understand images. It's a revolution that's still going on and which has been in progress for nearly two centuries. And in that time has gradually seeped into every aspect and every corner of our daily lives. Although all of us are in contact with this revolution and actually live and dwell inside it, I think few of us reflect on it very much. Instead, like many broad revolutions, we accept, even assume, 
it, and, and, and let it fade into the semi-conscious realm of the familiar, the habitual, the taken for granted. Now, I've hesitated a bit about the best name for this transformation in the nature of image because it has several aspects. Primarily, I think of it as the moving image, but there might be a broader sense of this, and I often think the best term for that might be the technological image. The point about this term, the technological image, is that although most images that exist rely on some form of technology for their production and have ever since the beginning of images in the Neolithic caves, but by the technological image, I mean something more than craft or skill or even tools. The new sort of images that I'm describing here rely on technology on mechanical or electronic apparatuses for their very existence, their very appearance. The technological um, apparatus must be present and functioning for the image to be perceived. No film without a projector. No video without a monitor. No FaceTime without a phone. Early audiences were very aware in a way that we maybe have lost, they were very aware of this aspect of the new moving image, that it was the product of a new machine, a mechanical and electrical device. The vaudeville show that Mac and Tina attended featured Edison's latest marble, the kinetoscope, and they watched the moving image as a demonstration of this new technology. The machine itself was the star. The film was its performance. It is the kinetoscope. Earlier on, uh, it was often referred to as a vitoscope. I, I could go into the long story about that, but just believe me, it's basically the same type of machine. It is the kinetoscope that garners Mac and Trina's wonder. But that wonder comes from the effects that this apparatus produces, an image that moves and therefore seems possessed of life. We now take for granted both these fundamental attributes of early cinema, its technology and the effect of movement. We certainly remain aware of them, but they have faded from our consciousness. And instead, we pay attention primarily to a thrilling drama that's unfolding, or a gorgeous movie star, or even a documentary of recent events. Our focus as viewers has clearly shifted. Well, I'm interested at least for the space of this time in this lecture, in rekindling that original wonder, that original awareness of the movement of the moving image. To do this, I want to contrast this once upon a time new phenomenon with a quick look at traditional images, images that don't move, such as paintings. Now, I apologize in advance to the art historians in the audience for the brevity and somewhat superficial way I will be looking at these paintings, but hopefully the contrast I intend will be clear. And I should say right off, it is a great privilege, of course, to give this talk in, as I said, one of the precious sanctuaries of such images. Here, we ha can have the amazing experience of moving ourselves as viewers past various images from different centuries and different cultures now, my friend and colleague, WJT, or Tom Mitchell, the author, among other books, of 
what do pictures want, has argued with me that all images move, that our active visual engagement in looking at paintings always involves perceptual and conceptual motion. Now, I think this is a profound observation about the way we experience paintings, especially complex ones. But I also want to explore the historical range in the ways that we experience this sense of motion or stability as we view still images. And finally, I want to explore and to emphasize how this movement that the spectator consciously directs remains different from the technologically produced moving image that I'm describing as a revolution. So, I've taken two famous Western paintings that I see as emblematic of the contrasting ways still images create a sense of stability and eternity or transience and transformation. And I apologize to my students that you will find these familiar from my lectures, but maybe it'll give you, you know, nostalgia. The first is Raphael's School of Athens, which comes from the height of the Renaissance. It was finished in 1511. It's a fresco, of course. And it celebrates that era, the era of the Renaissance's resurrection of classical knowledge, the classical knowledge that was founded in Athens as the basis of a renewed Western civilization. The various figures arranged on these steps in this make-believe hallway and atrium are the key figures uh, of the Greek tradition. Now, this new worldview of the Renaissance was embodied as well in the rediscovery and systematization of the deep space achieved by the techniques of perspective, which are beautifully demonstrated in this painting. This image projects stability, symmetry, and order through a pictorial organization of space. Rather than an acknowledgement of time passing, it stages hierarchies of knowledge that appear to be timeless, eternal. These people were never in the same space at the same time. But that's not his point. It's that their thought constitutes a foundation. That the painting itself is enclosed within an architectural arrangement of walls and arches, it's in the Papal Palace, that provides support and framing solidifies his sense of a stable, solid foundation. And in fact, the arrangement of perspective draws us towards a vanishing point, and that kind of emphasized by the archway, of course. And so the viewer's eye is drawn there, and Raphael has placed the two philosophical founders of this Western tradition, Plato and Aristotle. They seem to engage in conversation. They make gestures, but it's the emblematic pose of each that is significant rather than the actions they're performing. Plato, the philosopher of the heavenly forms, points upwards, while Aristotle, who believed forms were inherent in the world, holds out his hand horizontally. Now, let's look at a painting from almost four centuries later. A painting that, in fact, comes from around the time that Trina and Mac were viewing their first ocean picture show. Claude Monet's painting of the Rouen Cathedral. 
The subject of the painting is an immobile architectural structure. But in contrast to Raphael's solidity of outline and form, this cathedral seems to dissolve into a play of color and surface made up of small, very material touches of pigment. Importantly, this painting is not only a single entity, but part of a series of paintings that Monet did of the cathedral. And these are just a few of them. But if all these paintings show the same cathedral, more or less, from the same point of view, one might say its true subject of the series is light, the variety of it, and the variety of ways that it reflects off surfaces, its range of tones and shades, the dynamics of shadow and highlights that sunlight creates. But even more, perhaps, the series taken takes as a subject light in motion and thereby portrays the passage of time from dawn through noon to afternoon and evening. If Raphael depicted a school of thought, he placed it in an ideal location that existed outside of any specific place and time. Monet, in contrast, is obsessed with the flow of time its moment-to-moment -moment transformation during the course of the day in which the solidity of form seems to dissolve in a succession of visual appearances. Truly, these paintings seem to exemplify Mitchell's claim that paintings do move because they make us aware of the mobility of our perceptions and the range of its possibility. One might almost think of this as a, a motion picture if we think of it as moving from one image to another systematically. I believe, indeed, that it's more than a coincidence that Monet first displayed this series in 1895, which was the same year that the Lumiere Company premiered the Cinematograph in Paris, and that Thomas Armat and Frederick Jenkins showed the first projected films in the USA. Now, mind you, Monet's paintings look very different from the moving images that appeared on screens worldwide in 1895 and 1896, such as this image from Lumiere's very first film, Workers Leaving the Factory. Monet raises our awareness of both the color and the texture of paint, brings that to a kind of climax, whereas the first projected films were primarily in black and white and in sharp photographic focus. But nonetheless, Monet's series and the motion picture both belong to a new modern culture that emerged at the end of the 19th century and which possessed a new awareness of time and motion. Now, even if we think about photography, beginning in the 1870s, Photography had so improved the sensitivity of emulsions, led partly by the Lumiere Company that later on uh, brings the cinematograph. They had been a photographic supply company long before that and had pioneered a rapid dry plate process called Etiquette Blue Extra Rapide. And this is one of the photographs they took, and in fact, that is Auguste Lumiere jumping over a chair. So. Uh, the speed, this new speed of photography, which had not been available earlier, could freeze motion 
in place. This meant that the photograph had become instantaneous, a snapshot showing a world, a marvelous world. It was also perhaps a sort of a trick of technology. But also these deep, brief exposures opened a new dimension of time itself. The new dimension is the tenth of a second. And I'm indicating here this wonderful book by Hemina Canales, The History of the Tenth of a Second, which is not just about its use in photographic exposure, but in the sciences and the technology of the turn of the century, where this idea of a new threshold of time that was just beyond human perception became essential both to new types of images and to new types of technology. The tenth of a second is basically beyond human perception. And so it is a new dimension, I would say. This time of instantaneous transformation within a mobile world that only technology could capture and measure. It could not be seen by ordinary human vision, which of course was part of the point of Moybridge's series of the horse in motion in which he could prove for the first time that at several points, the, uh, all four hooves of the horse were off the ground, something people had speculated on, but no one could see with their naked eye. It is precisely this instantaneous photography that allowed first the analysis of motion in what is called the chronophotography, the photography of time of Edward Moybridge and of Etienne Jules Marais, in which you could freeze motion again in that instant that a human eye could not see. So first, this new sensitive uh, photography, these new emulsions allowed this breakdown, this freezing of motion but then it also allowed the synthesis in the photographic moving images of Lumiere and Edison, because now you could fix these images on a strip of film and then reproject them. So notice how dialectical this new technological moving image I'm describing is. First, the technology managed to freeze motion, to capture and fix it. Then it managed to reanimate it to record motion itself in this very course and to replay it. It is quite a wonder and an amazing trick. However, my purpose in rehearsing this well-known genealogy of the invention of cinema that most of you probably are aware of, it's not simply to see film as a climax of a series of technical inventions. My purpose is, let me stress it once again, to renew our sense of what a startling innovation the moving image uh, occasioned in the conception of what an image is and what it can do. Now, we often think today of movies primarily as a medium, a means of delivering stories and information. But in contrast, audiences seeing films in cinema's first decade at the turn of the century were, as I've stressed, amazed and entertained by the phenomenon of motion itself. Although undoubtedly novelty played a major role in this fascination, I don't see this as simply a naive gawking at a new invention. Instead, viewing these early films from the perspective of the moving image reminds us not only of the innovation that the technological image offered its viewers, but of the unique delight they gave them, the vivid and even in some ways contradictory experience 
of seeing an image which had been static and still for millennia suddenly take on life and move. Therefore, let us for a moment forget our acquired sophistication and we're going to project some films from this early, early 20th century, turn of the century period in which the delight and movement supplies the main attraction. Okay, so this first film was by the Biograph Company in New York City and it's of another new innovation, the New York subway, 1904. It's about five minutes long, and I want you to be drawn into this experience of motion. You may notice there on the left, the light that had to go into the tunnel to illuminate and make the film possible. Those who know New York will notice that some of those stations have not changed at all. Except for the posters, I guess. And I also want to stress the almost hypnotic quality of this image, this flickering of light and dark as we move down the track. I have found a somewhat earlier description of a similar film of a train moving through a tunnel and the camera moving with it. And one of the things that the critic said I've found particularly resonant. He said, it's as though an unseen energy swallows up space. Here again, you're seeing on the left the, the car with the lighting element. which ran parallel with the train so that it could be photographed. And here we reach the terminus of the film and suddenly see that space of living, moving people. And along with the fascination of the new technology, the urban crowd these faces that appear for a moment and then disappear. Part of that mobility. Now, I'm going to show you, um, as soon as the uh, projections can put it up, uh, another film, two years later, from 1906. Um, so already 10 years after Mac and Trina went into the, the movies, that is also involved with this kind of following of the moving train as a kind of um, device for, uh, for explaining and, and making the audience feel at home uh, with this kind of motion. So whenever you're ready, you can just start that. Again, another biograph film from Leadville to Aspen. Now, around 1905, 1906, the popularity of these types of films about railways had begun to be so strong that they actually designed theaters in which people were seated in something that looked like a railway car. 
and the screen would be at the front of the car and they would watch it and they would also have sound effects like clickety-clack of the wheels and, and air brakes and whistles so that you would have a kind of total immersive experience. It was known as Hale's Tours. Films began primarily in vaudeville theaters, like with Trina and Mac, as one attraction in between singers and acrobats and comedians. <laughs> Hale's Tours and the theaters that were designed to be like railway cars were the first theaters that were designed primarily for just showing films, not vaudeville, not live acts. And their popularity was very strong for about two years. And you can see here again this fascination here outside, not in a subway tunnel, of the unfolding landscape. And that again, almost hypnotic quality as we're sucked into the image. Perspective had evolved the idea of the vanishing point. And we could see how Raphael, as well as most of Western painting, used it to direct attention and to involve the viewer in the painting. Here, we have a mobile vanishing point, and it's as though we're chasing it. So instead of just a space organized as depth, we experience it almost physically. Seems to me we don't just watch a film like this with our eyes, but with our sensations of the whole body. And that's partly why the theaters were designed like railway cars, to give this immersive experience. Landscape, which of course is one of the major genres becomes mobile. Now, they inserted here, and this is an indication that cinema is changing, this little comic vignette inside the train with a kind of moving panorama, if you look over there, trying to ind indicate the, the, uh, trans the transforming landscape going by. And of course, what this indicates, to me, almost a little tragically, is that some people would just as soon see boring slapstick as a really dynamic landscape. And that to some extent already this kind of culture of motion was disappearing in favor of these kind of vaudeville acts, which I don't want to totally put down. They have their own charm. But then we return again to the outside and to this other type of cinema which again is to me just watching the way that we turn this corner, the way the bare limbs of the winter trees and the snow along the track evolve from different perspectives as we watch it. Again, of course we take this for granted, but let's try not to for at least a few minutes to really re-experience that kind of wonder of a moving viewpoint and a moving image. Now here we get a little bit of drama. And we begin, and I think this is a little more successful than the slapstick inside, 
to see an attempt to integrate this type of movement into a Western genre as we have the holdup. <laughs> but again, it's almost like a transformation as we return to the outside. And part of what I would say is that whereas, of course, later cinema is a storytelling cinema primarily, it's not impossible to combine even hackneyed action with some of these devices of the moving image. <laughs> so that we have the camera kind of participating in a sort of chase. And for me, there's a wonderful doubleness here. There certainly is a certain concern, will they catch up with the robbers? But also, just the fascination that continues of the landscape and, of course, down here, the discovery, if you're looking carefully, of a new element. The carriage under which the robbers make their escape. And again, films end more when they come to a station than when they're narratively uh, resolved. Okay. Good. So my own love of these early films, therefore, lies not simply in seeing them as a primitive stage in the long march to Hollywood perfection, but as a moment of contemplation of a radical transformation of the possibilities of the image. The moving image is undeniably a product of the modern world. It is highly technological, and it appeared in an environment where brief intervals of time and a heightened tempo had created a new receptivity for images that could visualize these aspects of modern life, an age, indeed, of electricity. And here you can see a number of early film theaters called themselves an electric theater. But while modern painting and modern literature also responded to these vast cultural changes, the moving in image introduced a transformation in the way images were perceived and presented. This was a perceptual transformation that established a new relation between the image the technological device, and the viewer. The perception of motion in an image is controlled and caused by the technological apparatus. It is not the same exactly. It is different from the way that for centuries viewers had scanned with their eyes a still image moving across it, but the image itself would have remained still. So what is this apparent motion that technology causes, that the device um, allows, and, and where did it begin? So let me take us back just a little bit, not as far back as the Renaissance, but to the early part of the 19th century, even before photography had be, been realized, which appeared in 1839. Because, in fact, the moving image first appeared shortly before photography, and it came primarily not from artists or industrialists, but from scientists and savants, those kind of amateur uh, scholars, who are probing the limits and possibilities of human vision. Now, as art historian Jonathan Crary has stressed, at the 
turn of the 18th to 19th century, 200 years ago or more, a variety of savants were investigating what we might call the oddities of human vision, aspects that seem to lodge primarily in the physiological nature of the eye, especially the fact that the eye sometimes sees things that are not actually there. Now, I'm not talking about you know, hallucination, dreams, you know, madness. I'm talking about things that the eye actually registers that all of us have seen, but that do not have a physical existence. Now, primary among such subjective phenomenon were what are known as after images. And these fascinated such early investigators as, of course, the, the great uh, scientist and poet, uh, uh, Wolfgang von der Goethe, and the Czech scientist, Jan Perkinji. And these are drawings that Perkinji gave of, of after images that he saw after closing his eyes after looking in a bright light. Although visual after images do not in themselves create an appearance of motion, it's worth spending a moment on this phenomenon. We all remember, I think, now stare at this fixedly without blinking all the time that I'm talking, so hopefully it'll work. And I think, as I say, we all did this sometime in science classes in middle school, uh, especially about uh, after images causing uh, color reversals. Um, if you stare at it fixedly, for an amount of time, we may not, I'm not gonna take a lot of time to do this, so I hope it'll work. And then you look over, say, to the wall, you will see that the image persists, at least for most of us, usually with a color reversal. And that would be an example of, we're seeing something, it's not, we're not crazy. The eye is registering something, but it's not something that is any longer physically there. Describing such phenomenon revealed that the eye does things other than to, I'm sorry, let me, take that back, other than to passively register the world around it. Conditions of light, movement, and fixation all influence how we see or even what we see. But perhaps most interestingly, these investigators created new devices to study the way vision operates and even to manipulate the way we see. For me, these scientific instruments represent the first examples of the sort of technological devices that will eventually produce the moving image. The simplest, but still very dramatic example of this is the thaumatrope, which we see here. Now, Charles Babbage, who you may know is the inventor of the difference machine, which was the predecessor of the modern computer, claimed that the thaumatrope arose from a playful challenge between a couple of savants. Sir John Herschel, who was an astronomer and in fact an important figure in the invention of photography, challenged Babbage to find a way that the two sides of a coin could be visible simultaneously. And a solution involving a reflection in a mirror was not allowed. Babbage was stumped. But Herschel brilliantly solved the problem by spinning the coin rapidly, so rapidly that both sides were visible to the viewer at the same time. This mobile demonstration depended on the physiology of vision, the effect of an after image, that the eye briefly persists in seeing, even after that side is no longer physically present. This visual phenomenon in the 19th century was called the persistence of vision. The principle was rendered even more easily demonstrable 
with a device constructed by Babbage and Herschel's friend, a Dr. Fulton, who fashioned, quoting Babbage, uh, a round disc of card suspended between two pieces of sewing silk, with each side of the disc showing a different picture. In this case, a bird on one side, a cage on the other. On turning the thread rapidly, the bird appeared to have got inside the cage." Unquote. Babbage claimed that he discovered some months later that this amusement of learned men had become a commercialized object and was being offered for sale by a Dr. Paris for a few shillings as a new toy known as the Thaumatrope. The Thaumatrope thaumatrope produced an image by turning faster than a certain threshold of perception, quicker in effect than the eye could see, or at least see normally. This device merged the scientific and the playful, the learned and the popular. As Jonathan Crary, still our best and most profound thinker on these devices, says of the thaumatrope, quoting Crary here, similar phenomenon had been observed in earlier centuries merely by spinning a coin and seeing both sides at the same time, but this was the first time the phenomenon was given a scientific explanation and a device was produced to be sold as a popular entertainment. The simplicity of this philosophical toy made unequivocally clear both the fabricated, you know, that it's produced, that it's made by this device, and the hallucinatory, that is a kind of illusion, nature of this image, and the rupture between perception and its object. End of the quote from Crary. Now the name that John Arton Paris gave to this device, which he sold, is worth considering. Thalma is the Greek word for wonder, while trope, or tropi sometimes, means to turn. One commentator, in fact, translated the word as the wonder turner. The turn refers to the rapid motion of the device. It's spinning on the string, while wonder is the effect it produces in the viewer. An amazement at a perceptual transformation occurring right before her very eyes. The device here, like all devices of technological images, works through an encounter with the possibilities of human vision, its ability to fuse these two images into a single one at a certain threshold of speed, and a device which even as simple as this disc and a bit of string may be, causes an alteration in the way we see allowing us to see something that is not physically there. And I love that this image is, of course, the Chesser cat from Alice in Wonderland, who in the story disappears, leaving nothing but its smile. Although the thaumatrope does not so much create a moving image as create an image through movement, it does produce a fundamentally new sort of image, one that takes place, so to speak, in the space between the viewer and the device but which exists without any sort of physical support, in contrast to all previous forms of images. Of course, the the image on one side has the support, but when we see the two of them, it's floating in midair, in effect. The image produced by the thaumatrope is, in this sense, a virtual image rather than a material one. This immateriality would be true of all later moving images and is part of the revolution. And indeed, the thaumatrope was followed by a large number of what were termed termed philosophical toys. 
devices designed to both entertain and educate viewers, demonstrating the limits and possibilities of perception, and at the same time producing wonder and amazement at these phenomena. Joseph Plateau's, Plateau's 1829 phenakistoscope, seen here, was the first device to produce an actual moving image using carefully designed drawings on the stages, uh, drawings of the stages of motion arranged around a disc that could be spun and viewed through a shutter. Now let me just explain it a little bit here. You can see the image of the horse running, or it might be a goat, no, it's a horse, uh, around the uh, perimeter of the disc. And the viewer looks at it through the slots. You can see those things are actually little slots. He looks at it reflected in the mirror and the slots work as a kind of shutter that makes each image of the horse separate, little bursts of motion rather than just a blur of continuous motion, which it would be if you weren't looking at it that way. You spin it with your finger, you can see his finger poised there, ready to give it another turn. And looking at it through the slots, you would get this image of a horse running. Due to complex action, in the process of vision, and we still are not exactly sure what makes this happen in our eye and our mind. Both, it's both physiological and psychological. These bursts then would be fused into not a single image, like in the thaumatrope, but a cycle of continuous motion. Later devices, and this is another image of the, of the phenokinsiscope where the, where the shutter is actually, uh, the slots are uh, arranged around the periphery but the same principle, and you would see these frogs jump-frogging uh, uh, as they move around. Later devices include things like the zoetrope, which arranged this in a drum, and you would look through the slots again at the images that are inside and see uh, a succession of motion. Or the praxinoscope, which used a little bit later in the 19th century, which used um, a series of mirrors rather than slots. And all these additions basically had the same principle of converting these still images through the device and through the rapidity and through the way that you're looking at them into an image of motion. But the different devices, of course, made it a little bit easier to, to look at them. And they were used mainly by parents to entertain children, but also by scientists to observe mobile phenomena. Again, the physiologist Etienne Jules Marais actually built a three-dimensional zoetrope from which he observed the flight of birds. And this was not only because he was interested in the physiology of birds, but because he was also working on problems of aviation. And this allowed him to see how birds managed to fly. But whatever their design, these and other devices introduced a revolution in the nature of images. Instead of a picture adhering physically to a surface, the technological image only appears when the viewer is in alignment with the device that is operating properly. Recognizing the way it transforms the nature of an image as it was traditionally conceived is fundamental, I would claim, to appreciating the moving image. The moving image is not simply a traditional image with motion added to it. And here we actually get the effect done through a computer of a phenokistoscope. If you're looking through the slots, you'd only see one of these, and so this is kind of delightful. So it's not just like 
an image to which motion has been added, like we could think of a black and white print where we, we add color. Rather, the phenomenon of motion utterly transforms our relation to the image. We have a different feeling as we watch it, we participate in it, partly because the image itself is produced by this interaction between our perception and the technology. And the technology is designed exactly to trigger certain effects in our perception. And the effect, I would say, of this alteration of perception, this creation of a new sort of image, is wonder. But today, we do have to ask, do we still experience any of this wonder when we watch a moving image? We're surrounded by them in daily life. We not only watch them for entertainment, but we watch them to find out about the weather, to find out how to cook a turkey, or how to put together furniture from Ikea. And as our communication has increasingly become mediated by motion pictures and motion picture devices, we now see our loved ones and um, conduct business and make decisions through these mediated devices and their virtual images. Is there any room left for wonder? This seems to me to be largely a question of habit. We've become habituated to the moving image. It fades from our immediate consciousness. The great Russian critic, Viktor Sklodsky, described the effect of habit in daily life this way, quoting Sklodsky, habituation devours objects, clothes, furnitures, one's wife, and the fear of war. If all the complex lives of many people go on unconsciously, then such lives are as if they have never been. Is that what has happened to moving images today? Has habituation devoured our experience of the uniqueness of the moving image? Or does some possibility of wonder persist, working as it is beneath the surface, waiting to be tapped? Now, Sklovsky saw the renewal of sensation, the overcoming, overcoming of the deadening of experience through habituation as the purpose and goal of art. Quoting Sklovsky, Art exists to help us recover the sensations of life. It exists to make us feel things, to make the stone stony. The end of art is to give a sensation of the object seen, not simply to recognize it." End of quote. I might then close this discussion that has been largely historical and technological with a turn to aesthetics under Sklodsky's guidance. The wonder of the motion picture image has not truly vanished, it has simply faded. One of the marks, I believe, of the true film artists is the ability and the desire to renew this wonder, to make us re-experience it by accenting it, by foregrounding it, by making it dramatic and palpable again, making moving images moving. Such focusing on movement has been one tradition throughout film history. And let's look at a moment. I'm going to show two sequences now to close this. One short, one a little longer. Uh, first, a couple minutes from a film by a contemporary of Sklodsky's, the extraordinary documentary filmmaker, Dziga Vertov, and his film from 1929, The Man with the Movie Camera. Now, this is a film filled with images of daily life and with the process of the camera and the cinema 
And here we see the cameraman filming very aggressively people in the streets of Odessa in 1929, who in fact he thinks are practicing a bourgeois lifestyle because they have cars and carriages. But notice that it's along with the political point here, the sense of movement, the constant turning of the camera. And here he moves up to the horse, pulling the carriage, and magic for one of the first times in cinema, freeze frame. He goes backwards in effect. He suddenly makes all these images that were moving still. Why does he do this? I think to show the magic of movement when it returns. We see film as a material object, still images on celluloid. Those are traditional still objects, still images. And just notice how different they are. And this is, of course, the editor's bench and where, he's, where she's categorizing and looking at the images as still objects, winding them, selecting them, examining them. There's the blur of motion and then the cutting. And then she looks at them and magically they come to life. Because he's stilled it, because he's gone backwards in time, he allows us to feel that excitement that burst into some other realm, that coming to life. Notice how this little kid looks at the world that's frozen, blinks his eye, and it moves. And suddenly feel again this immediacy, this recognition, even though these are you know, almost 100 years old, people from another culture, another era, but they're living, breathing, addressing us, and we go back to that horse. Okay, you can stop that sequence here. And then I want to, because of course, primarily, I've been engaging in a kind of archeology span here, or at least a bit of history, going back and trying to think about the origins of cinema and something that was there that people sensed then that maybe we've lost some sense of, but which I'm also saying is not lost entirely, that is still there. And I want to end this discussion by looking at a sequence about a little less than 10 minutes uh, from a rather recent film that I think is quite extraordinary, and the fact that it was popular and won Academy Awards doesn't make it any less interesting, which is Gravity, which is a film that I think is extraordinary for its understanding of motion and also its use, of course, of new technology, digital technology, to create a kind of motion that Vertov could only dream of, that Edison couldn't imagine. So whenever you're ready, I know it, uh, we're switching to, oh good, okay. So, now one of my points of course has been that the motion picture opened us into a new world, a world of a new type of time, a new type of machinery, a new tempo. Films like this, they're fictional still, of course, they're fanciful, they're maybe in some ways incomplete, 
but they're giving us this new awareness of a kind of space and viewpoint that isn't part of Renaissance perspective. Think about how anchored Raphael's vision was compared to this view floating someplace above our world. And then the way that movement inside it, this approach of this form that we're not sure what it is at first. We hear these voices that are being carried electronically. They're not anchored yet in any particular space. And if you were fortunate enough to see this in a theater with Atmos sound, which has hundreds of speakers, not only on the walls, but on the ceiling. You have this experience of the way that this film also is about moving sound, the way sound moves us. So as we begin to recognize this as some type of spaceship, as it moves towards us, and just get that sense of floating, just the same way that the Hales Tour films, the train films of the early 20th century gave us and explored and allowed us to feel aesthetically the wonder of the new motion of trains and locomotives moving down the track. Here, it allows us to imagine this floating and turning in space in which, of course, there is precisely no gravity. Now, absolutely, this film has a story. It has suspense. It's a whole question about people surviving. I'm not trying to indicate that stories are no good or that they are counter to this experience of movement, but rather to indicate that in some ways what is important about this, story is not, about this film is not the story so much, but this new experience of moving through space, which, of course, is achieved by complicated computer programs that combine various elements of an image within a constantly moving matrix. What's up and what's down here? He appears to be doing some form of the Macarena. That would be just a best-guess scenario on my part. And notice that this is continuous. We've had no cuts. Just a camera that seems as weightless and as unbound as the characters who move around us. The sense of movement in cinema, as I say, not only transforms our sense of a still image, but think particularly of the frame. As much as Tom Mitchell points out that we move around as we look at paintings, our eyes scan them, our bodies imagine different positions. The frame can't change. But here, the frame is continually being broken, broached. Things are moving beyond it. Things are moving into it. Even when we're close up like this, the slight movements in and out of the frame are important. And we have this convergence here between this openness of the moving image, this open frame, this pushing of it even further than we've seen before by the lack of gravity, the lack of orientation, the constant 
changes not only in position, but in our sense of where people are in relation to the camera, and that it's revealing a new world. Probably none of us will ever walk in space. I hope I never do. But to have had this experience through the cinema is, I think, part of the modern world. And here I want us to get that sense of that background that changes from the darkness of infinite space to the bright blue and white marble of the earth. The home of these characters, but which also floats in an undefined space, which keeps on getting closer and farther. Notice how he's moved from one side of the frame to the other. Doesn't seem impossible, but it gives us a sense of that transformation of space. Okay, Olivia, we can, we can cut it there. So I hope what I've indicated to you is a couple things. One, which I know I've almost tired you out with, that this was a revolution, that this is a different type of image. But not just to take that for granted, to feel it viscerally. That was what it was about. This is an image that takes place in our technology and in our eye and body, in our body and mind. And that it is an extraordinary kind of tool. And one which I think is constantly functioning when we watch ads, when we watch demonstrations of how to put IKEA furniture together. It's not as though those movements have disappeared. It's simply that we take them purposefully. But we can also take them aesthetically as opening up and exploring a whole new medium, and a medium that is constantly changing and constantly expanding. And now for, I know many people need to leave, so, which is fine, but um, I will stay for a few minutes uh, with, uh, uh, with the audience uh, and, uh, and take questions. I'm gonna just wait just a minute until people have had a chance to kind of clear out. Okay, and I did see, yes. Thank you. Uh, yes, okay, yes, because I know um, it was uh, two questions. One, a kind of comment primarily about the, the Lumiere photograph, uh, photograph of Auguste Lumiere jumping over the chair and just the point of kind of like that it's, he hasn't jumped over it. It's, it's, he's, he's clearing it at that moment. And the other one was a question about Jan Pukinji, Jan Evangelistica Pukinji, uh, who uh, I showed the, his drawings of after images. Uh, there, and whether the Pukinji cells in the eye. Uh, yes, these were his discovery. He's an extraordinary figure, uh, kind of neglected unless, unless you're Czech, and the Czechs know about him. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, exhibit in the museum in Prague about him. And he was a friend of Goethe's. He lived for quite a while, so his research lasts from the very beginning of the 19th century, in the 19, um, 1810s, uh, until about 1860. So he, he bridges from kind of romantic science to, to what was later on kind of hard, you know, objective science. Uh, and he did amazing experience, uh, experiments. He was particularly interested in vision. Uh, he was interested, as I mentioned a lot, in, uh, in after images. But there's also another term that we have is the Purkinje effect, 
which is to me one of the most beautiful experiences we have, that in winter, if you see snow, as the sun is setting, it turns blue. And what Perkinji found was that under low light, uh, it's not that it's turned blue, you know, it hasn't been dyed, but it's again one of these subjective factors of the eye that in low light uh, conditions, the blue becomes visible, uh, whereas the other elements of the spectrum disappear. And he also did experiments. He's one of these people that um, on vertigo, on dizziness, and would spin himself around in a mobile chair for hours. I mean, he, he, he really abused his body in the interest of science or in the interest of fun. I'm not sure which. But yes, it is the same figure, and he's a fascinating figure. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Uh, thank you for your presentation on the perception of image. Mm -hmm. But how would you approach this idea that bad image and good sound makes it tolerable for humans? I don't know if that's always true. Do you think that's always true? It's comparable. Yeah. Well, it's it's a curious fact. I, I, I would have to confess it's not something I've thought about a lot. And of course what we mean by bad sound can mean different things. Does it mean badly reproduced or abrasive? I do know that um, yes, you know, when you get really harsh, disturbing sounds. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it is almost unbearable. Uh, and indeed, it's, uh, I think they've found in psychological testing and so on that this can have a lot of impact. However, if you get repeatedly bright lights, you know, which is something you don't get that often, say, in a film, uh, that, that can be pretty unbearable, too. But, but I take your point. It, it is the, the power of, of that type of sound, and of course, I'm primarily focused on the visual here, uh, is, uh, is, is quite powerful. I think that's true. Yes, far in the back. Yes, and I have to admit, I'm going to polemically say something that I don't entirely believe. <laughs> but very often, a lot of uh, critics will make this point, that what, what makes a good movie is good acting and good stories, and that the technology is less important. I'm not sure I think that's true. I don't mean it's absolutely untrue. But for me, good stories, you can read a novel. Good acting, you can go to the theater. Technology, you have to see the screen. So I'm actually a little bit more on the other side of it. I mean, that isn't to say that I want to see a bad movie with good technology, you know, with uh, horrible acting and, and bad stories. But I do think there's a certain tendency among film critics and among some filmmakers to value those more traditional things over the, the, the mechanical and the technological, which are actually what makes cinemas unique. I mean, I have to admit, even though he comes from my hometown and from everyone that I knew who knew him, thought he was a wonderful man. There's an article by Roger Ebert called Why I Hate 3D and You Should Too. You know, that just annoys the hell out of me. Now, no question there's a lot of bad 3D. No question, you know, uh, it can be annoying. But at the same time, there can be great 3D. And, and Gravity was one film. 
Uh, 3D is also being explored by avant-garde filmmakers in an amazing way. I'm currently involved in a project with two video 3D makers. So I think the technology in itself is worthy of attention. I don't think it's just a means to those other things. But I would certainly agree, great movies come when you really can combine both. Uh, but I would say that Gravity, which I think is probably a great movie, it's always good to wait a few years to see how it holds up, but it's not because, I mean, it has good acting, it has good dialogue, but it's not because of that that I think it's great. It really is because of the technology. Uh, so I'm not really disagreeing with you, but I am polemically a little bit saying defending technology uh, and saying that technology is is worthy of attention. And there is a certain, you know, it's almost like a class thing, you know. The qualities of the traditional arts are more valued than the mechanics of the, of the new arts. And I think that's partly small-minded, you know. It's partly like, uh, prefer, you know, just saying that, you know, I mean, Raphael is absolutely great, but there's something about the Monet that he doesn't do as well as vice versa. So I'm, I am a little bit of a defender of technology and of new technology. Oh. Yes? Um, I have a question about um, Frank Harris's Matisse. Mm -hmm. um, in the quote you read, you said they were looking at Edison's kinetoscope, mm -hmm. which I always thought was a, a people viewer. What if it had been the vitoscope, which was Edison's yep. projecting device? This is a, while I was making this, I thought, okay, should I explain this? And I thought, well, this is, only a few people are going to be interested. And the people who are interested will hopefully ask this question, so thank you. So yes, let me explain this. Edison's first motion picture device, and this is in itself very interesting, was a peep show device called the kinetoscope. It involved film, but you looked in through a little peephole and saw the film unroll you know, um, behind, a, behind a lens. Lumiere and a few other people, including this American named Thomas Armat, took another approach and projected motion pictures. Edison had done his kinetoscope first, so they all had learned from him, but they said, why not project it large, where a whole audience can see it? And they knew about magic lanterns, and so they, they knew this was totally technically possible. Why Edison didn't do it the speculation is that he thought he could make more money with peep shows, you know, because each individual moment you'd have to put in a nickel. But when it was demonstrated that projection was a wave of the future, Thomas Armat went to one of the Coster and Bile, uh, big vaudeville uh, chain, and said, I have this new projection device. It, it's great. It's perfected. It'll work. And they said, well, what about Edison's Kinetis Company? He said, that's a peep show. This is going to be projected. And they said, you know, we can make a lot more money. And he called it the, the Vitascope. We could make a lot more money if Edison had invented this because that's the name we could advertise. So our map went to Edison, or rather the vaudeville people got the two of them together, and said, Edison, will you put your name on this invention? Uh, and, uh, and we'll say, you know, even though he had almost nothing, he probably suggested little tweaks uh, with this projector, the, the Vitascope. It came, was advertised as Edison's greatest marvel. But Edison immediately said, I can make one of those too. 
So he made what he called, and it was in 1897, uh, no, end of 96, the projecting kinetoscope. And that's what Trina and Mac are going to see. Uh, but it is true, and I, you know, I kept on looking, did I have a poster that said projecting kinetoscope? And I didn't, uh, because it didn't get quite as much play. The, the vitoscope was the first one. So that's the kind of complicated story, and it's a, it's a great story, because it shows that you know, people were lying from the very beginning in the publicity for films. You know, uh, it was not Edison's vitoscope. But he, it was true, he, he could, with just a few, it wasn't like he was stupid. You know, it, with a few changes, he could do it. And once he saw this is where the film industry is going, he came up with his own. And he kept the word kinetoscope, although he added projecting. So, but thank you for that, because I, I have to admit, I kept on saying, okay, I could do a whole paragraph here, but I'm not sure it's what I need at this point in the talk. And hopefully somebody will ask about it afterwards. So, other, yes, over there, you, yes. Uh huh. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's great, very relevant questions, all of which are floating around, you know, the kind of margins of what I could do in the hour or so. Uh, first off, difference between the moving image and the technological image. What I began to think about, and Crary is very helpful here, is that there are technological images that don't involve movement. To some extent, the thaumatrope. It's not really, I mean, it, it, because it's produced by movement, it's, it, it's kind of ambiguous, but it's not exactly a moving image. But the good, or the very clear example, it's the one that Crary spends most of his time on, the stereoscope, which of course is the device that allows three-dimensional images to be seen. Or, and, and it's exactly a technological image. It has a device, 
You know, it creates an image that doesn't exist on, you know, even though each of the two images that blend uh, are on a support, the image you see that's three-dimensional is not on a support. So the main thing is kind of simple. The technological image is a larger class to which the moving image is one example. So that's the main distinction I would give. But then getting into the issue of Deleuze, who's, uh, for those of you who might not be familiar, contemporary, or, well, he's deceased, but um, recent French philosopher, Gilles Deleuze, uh, who wrote two volumes on cinema, which he called the movement image, the movement image rather than the moving image, and the time image. I've actually got an essay where I kind of almost say, why I hate to lose, and you should too. But it, it's actually, that's, that's not at all really what I'm claiming, and I'm, I, even though I disagree with him, I'm very influenced. But what's interesting to me is Deleuze had no interest in early cinema. He had no interest in the moving image. The movement image is different from the moving image. It's actually editing or camera movement. You know, uh, He didn't think moving image was a very interesting thing. And to some extent, my whole book is a polemic with it with that uh, viewpoint, which is to say I owe him a lot, you know, because it's always good when a top-ranked thinker has made a mistake or left something out and you can kind of add it in. Uh, and I do think, uh, you know, and, and it's interesting, I have to uh, be a little immodest here and say that a number of reviewers, uh, particularly in the English language, uh, of the cinema books said it's too bad Deleuze did not pay more attention to early cinema and read people like Charlie Musser and Tom Gunning and so on, uh, who pointed out that there's something, because he basically says, I mean, I found this one quote where he says, nothing's interesting before 1910, you know? Uh, and I go, that's exactly when things are most interesting, precisely because of this quality of, 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 uh, of not movement as he defines it, but moving. So I, I have a difference with him there, even though, you know, as I say, it's a difference that I was able to articulate my ideas in opposition to him, so you know, I don't want to claim he didn't inspire me, um, but he's wrong. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, great. Watching these trains move along, that was wonderful. So in light of your argument that what changed was the ability to have a now limitless change in the framing elements Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's, that's a good question, because I, I agree with you very much with this expansion. You know, we get to the vanishing point, and there's another vanishing point, and another one, and another. So there's no vanishing, even though it looks like there is at one point, you know. And the tracks, of course, converge at a kind of vanishing point. So I, I very much agree with you about the idea of expansion. At the same time, however, what I love about the quote, you know, and it's a metaphor, of course, uh, is, um, let's see if I can, I can describe this experience properly, that not only do you have this expansion ahead of you, you have things disappearing behind you, you know? So at the same time that you have the, you are at a point in those films where both, as you look forward, the world is expanding. As you don't so much look backward, but sense it behind your back, it's disappearing into the unseen. So it's that sense of swallowing up in the sense of disappearing that uh, is particularly uh, strong to me. So it's the combination of the two, and I'm, I'm so glad that you were talking about that this is a strong experience. I remember at one point as a graduate student, um, because there are hundreds of these films, and they're in film archives, and the archivists often don't know what to do with them because, you know, who cares? They don't have stories, they don't have movie stars. Uh, and I was watching at the Library of Congress one after another, and uh, one of the archivists walked behind me and looked at what I was looking at and went, mm-hmm, anything that moves, Gunning, right? Anything that moves. Yeah, and of course I thought, yeah, it's probably my perversion. But, um, but it is a source of fascination, I think, if we're open to it. I mean, I'm not upset if people don't, and I wouldn't want to just have all movies like this, certainly, you know, that, and it is interesting, you know, I'm, very often when I show these, people make the point that particularly in Europe, there are TV views of train uh, footage like this. And, uh, and when I first saw it, I thought, this is very interesting, but of course they last very long. And what somebody explained to me, I'm not sure this is true, but that they're there, and they're late at night, that they're there for people who have insomnia and that it puts them to sleep. So, uh, you know, but even that is to me interesting. As I said, the idea that they're kind of hypnotic is, I think, an important part of it. And part of that idea of the an unseen energy swallow space um, it, it evokes to me that kind of sense of it's passing through me. It's, you know, I, I'm taking it in. Well, I don't want to get, you know, excremental here, but I, and, and, and it's passing it. I'm passing it out uh, at the same time. So those are the elements that, that for me, make that uh, quote. But to me, I would agree they don't deny that expansion. Other questions or comments? Yes. Um, uh, I, I don't mean to criticize that mostly, uh, Roger Ebert, who worked very hard. <laughs> yes. And, uh, knew his subject well, mm -hmm. chose his work well. But I'm wondering if he didn't see in previous, essentially what Prima's mother was seeing mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. the in the sense that when 3D first came out, it was a gimmick. Yep, yep. Yep. And it ended after only a few years of having lost the competition with Cinemascope. Mm -hmm. So that uh, we were only just getting to the point where 3D would be used for uh, uh, other purposes, like in the film Hondo, when yes. uh, John, uh, John Wayne and Geraldine Page are taking a stroll by the pond, mm -hmm. the pond and the purple sky in the background mm -hmm. and, the, and 
shadows cast by the trees, mm -hmm. uh, using the 3D to create uh, a scene of tranquility. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And this was only only beginning when the when the uh, when 3D died out and attempts to revive it to revive it later mostly made the mm -hmm. mistakes of the early. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, almost exactly right, you know, that it is, that, that he is saying that's nothing but a trick. And there are two things. One, often it was nothing but a trick. But then also this idea of, well, what's wrong with that? You know, a, a little bit. I mean, I mean, we can see what's wrong with that is when it's not creative, it's not thought through, it doesn't have a variety, it dulls. Uh, you know, things uh, become um, habitual and boring. Uh, and exactly, I would agree that one of the points about 3D that was kind of unexplored, but I think it's more being explored now, though it's certainly lesser, is these other possibilities to it. Um, when they first introduced IMAX 3D, and it was still where you had to wear a kind of helmet, uh, it was some movie about, and this kind of goes back to the question about quality, uh, about people on a space station or something. Worst movie I ever saw, uh, you know, as far as acting story. And I was sitting there going, God, this is terrible. This is boring. But look at that feather on her costume. That's amazing. And I thought, I am now having the experience that first audiences had. You know, that they could see something there that was beyond the fiction that was being offered them. So, um, exactly. And, and of course, uh, any number of filmmakers are exploring this. But I also would say that a lot of um, gimmicky films, uh, I mean, I think uh, the Transformers series has some extraordinary uh, 3D, uh, even though it's, you know, is this, you know, well, partly coming from Chicago, I love seeing, you know, all the buildings in the loop, you know, fall into my lap. There's something very thrilling about that. So. Um, I think you're absolutely right. That's definitely kind of what uh, Roger Ebert was saying. And, and, you know, as I say, I'm a little bit polemical here. It isn't like I don't know what he's saying. And it isn't as though I totally disagree with it. But I am saying, don't shut this down. Number one, it has other possibilities. And number two, even those gimmicky possibilities are maybe worth experiencing. Yes? Mm -hmm. But what do you think will be the next technology beyond CGI 3D? It's, it's, I a little bit never want to predict stuff like that. Because um, what one tends to do is to take something that's already existing and just extend it. Whereas what's usually interesting is when it bends and does something else. But nonetheless, I will do it. Uh, and, uh, or speculate about something. And something that I've been working on, actually, with, with a couple of uh, really extraordinary um, 3D video um, avant-garde filmmakers called the Open Ended Group, uh, which is a virtual reality returning where, and of course, we've all been getting these viewers, you know, kind of through magazines and stuff that both Google and uh, other uh, uh, people do where you can use your phones and the frame is infinitely expanded. And um, I recently, or I just finished teaching a course at the University of Chicago with, with these, uh, the open-ended group. 
And our initial, it, we turned out we didn't have enough of the technology to do this. But what was interesting was that all the people were saying this new thing, and I, a lot of people have seen this, right, where you can look up and you look down and it keeps on expanding, and that you know the people who are promoting this technology at, at Google and, and at, uh, um, I guess, I, I think Facebook also has it, um, are saying it'll eliminate the frame. And so we said, well, let's figure out how to make frames you know, inside that type of technology. We didn't figure that out. But um, I, I think there is going to be something about the frame, not necessarily uh, abolishing it, but uh, reorienting it, and possibly a mobile viewer. You know, Because one of the things I alluded to, but didn't get into because it would have taken me too far afield when I was showing the images here at the National Gallery, people looking at paintings, is there's also the experience of walking from a, one painting to another, which I think is really, really interesting. It's, again, not a moving image, but it's, it's something else. But the idea of that these new technologies open up uh, of kind of virtual reality, of moving around and directing your view, there's something there. And I'm not sure what it is, uh, because I'm not, I, I also think it, it's not very good for telling stories. Because telling stories, you want to know where you have to look. You know? uh, but it might be good for something else. And I'm not sure exactly what that is. So that's something I'm interested in. OK, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a complicated question, partly because both I have a great, I think it's more than nostalgia, but part of it is nostalgia for seeing things on the screen. And I think there are films that are made, I, I do not let my students um, skip screenings, you know, unless they're deathly ill. They have to come and see it on the screen with an audience when they're looking at films from the silent era or the classical era. That's part of what they were designed for. But the idea, and for a long time, I mean, there was a famous ad for a while that David Lynch had when he said, you know, you looked at one of my movies on your phone, you didn't see the movie, you know. And, and you know, I agree with that. At the same time, though, I'm not sure that these individual viewing devices don't have other elements that there isn't a certain intimacy. I mean, my dear friend, uh, Noah Stamatsky, at uh, one point we were talking about this, and she said, you know, the other day I took a transatlantic flight, and there was a guy sitting across from me watching uh, Antonioni's um, uh, eclipse, uh, eclipse on his phone, you know, in the darkness of the airplane. She said, and I'm not sure he wasn't having a great experience. So I want to be open to it at the same time. I don't want anyone to think it's the same thing or that these differences don't matter. You know, that's what I hate about it. You can see it anywhere and it's the same film. No, it's a different film. But that difference might be interesting. And I'm interested in people who might begin working with that. The other thing we were talking about this in the course that I was giving is the big limitation of virtual reality is it's individual. You know, it's one viewer at a time goes back to Edison the kinetoscope and goes back to the stereoscope. You know, I began to think maybe there's something very interesting in that individual viewer device experience 
that you know, shouldn't ever be thought of as the equivalent of this, but shouldn't be thought of as meaningless or worthless. So that's kind of my orientation to that. Now, should we call it, or do we? Well, maybe, yeah, unless there's one. Have we left anybody out who's really dying to ask a question? Kim. Mm-hmm. You know, in a public space, it's a different experience. But then again, there's something to be said about a mobile device. You can tip it around, you can yeah. stop it. You have different types mm-hmm. of control over it. And I was thinking of the kind of spatial or virtual reality of the internet in terms mm-hmm. of the opposite of what your first film showed, which is our connection to a train, to travel, to a, diff- a sense of space that is mm-hmm. in Right. And what, yeah, no, I think, I think this is all true. And it's exactly kind of, you know, the, the earlesh lesson of what I'm talking about here, that, that in a certain way, all this technology is how we live today. And that to use it as an aesthetic phenomenon actually teaches us about the world we live in. And although I have to admit, sometimes I wish I did not live in this world, it's inevitable. And the idea that you know we can expand the imagination with something like gravity, uh, and which is also about the perils of that world. It's not. It's not a utopian view. Uh, uh, all of this, I think, is you know, it's a way that early films showed us how to live in a world of telephones and fast trains and the telegraph. And likewise, I think you know these new media are telling us how to live in a world where we communicate by internet, where we fall in love, maybe, you know, over uh, uh, Skype, you know. Uh, What does that mean? Might be terrible, might not. Hard to tell. So, So thank you all. This has been the National Gallery of Art podcast. 